and welcome to Associated, the podcast making venture capital more accessible. I'm Lois and today I'm hosting with Francesca and we're very pleased to be joined by Sarah Gamori, Senior Associate at Atomico. Welcome Sarah, how are you feeling? I'm good, thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for agreeing to come on. Francesca, how are you doing? I am well, thank you. As we were just starting offline, it's nice that the weather is holding and I'm in the countryside, so getting to enjoy it, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm still in London. <laughs> oh no, you poor thing. Hopefully you'll be able to get out and do some walks. Yeah. Yeah, that daily mandated exercise <laughs> that we all live for now. Staying sane. Yeah, trying to exercise for sure. So Sarah, I thought we could maybe kick off by talking a little bit about your role because we haven't had anyone who kind of specializes in research and insight on the show yet. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, of course, we'd love to. So I'm part of the investment team at Atomico, which is a venture fund partnering with mission-driven European founders at Series A and, and beyond. So we just raised our fifth fund of 820 million and we are sector agnostic, which means that we do invest across consumer, enterprise, and frontier technology companies. And while most of our partnerships are formed at Series A, our fund also enables us to invest at Series B and C. So I'm the only person in the team who is not specialized in the sector. And instead, I work across consumer, enterprise, and frontier. Uh, But doesn't mean I'm not specialized, though. Um, So I'm specialized in the sense that I support the team with data and insights. So in practice, it means that I'm constantly juggling different types of projects, competing priorities and timelines. So I guess if I had to think about how to categorize them, they usually fall into like different buckets. So one, I work on, on live deals. So those are like the most short-term and and kind of quick projects that I I work on. So they're usually quite intense and I work with the deal team and they support on specific areas of due diligence. So we can talk a bit more about it later, but I have spent some time working on mobile intelligence. So if it's a consumer business, I will do a bit more around uh, mobile metrics and understanding uh, how they're performing against other similar companies. Or uh, what I do more often is look at the markets and also bring in any interesting data sets that can give us a better understanding of the positioning in the markets and also the competitive landscape. So that's what I do with the, with the deal team when it's time to work on a live deal. I also help them with more foundational projects, I would say, which are more medium term and can last a few weeks to a couple of months. And that ranges across whether it's working on their investment thesis, whether it's trying to do more event-driven sourcing or giving them a download on, on the macro uh, economic outlook or you know anything that kind of comes about like COVID-19, for example. And, uh, and then I also do work on more strategic and longer-term projects which are mainly around the fund strategy and the economics of the fund. And then obviously the the State of European Tech report is a big piece as well, which takes quite a bit of time at the end of the year. So I guess in order to do this, I'm constantly iterating on the best way to scale myself up. um, Because as you can imagine, all of these things take a lot of time. 
And um, what I try to do as much as possible is leverage existing and relevant content and research. Data providers as well is a big one. And then also trying to build self-serve tools for the team. So I try and develop some frameworks that they can use for specific things. Or we also have an engineering team on board, so I do collaborate with them quite a lot on, on specific projects. And given a lot of what I do revolves around data, I realized that a big part of this job is making sure that the information and the, the knowledge flows within the organization and more importantly is stored in the format that can be used afterwards. So actually, I've been extremely focused on building, a, I would say, a data layer or data strategy within the firm so that we can also make sure that we don't just you know, pay for external data provider, but that we also create and maintain our own proprietary data set. So that's kind of like how I would frame the role. But I guess I like to say a bit of a handy woman job as well. <laughs> <laughs> trying to do a lot of different things and, and give people answers to questions they have. Yeah, sure. That's a really helpful framework. And there's, there's a lot that I want to pick up in there, but I wonder maybe we could go back to COVID-19 quickly since it's so timely um, and talk a little bit about the research that you've done around that and any thought processes that are starting to emerge. Yeah, I mean, we are obviously spending a lot of time trying to make sense of the current environment that we are in. We're trying to also, you know, understand COVID-19, but I think more broadly also what it means for the economy, because as you may know, like we've been talking about a recession for a while, and I think now it's definitely looking like it's coming. And I guess, you know, those are two different things that we're trying to, to juggle. So we've spent time, obviously, you know, first focusing on our portfolio companies and making sure we have a, a plan uh, for them and, uh, and making sure that we also support them as much as required. Secondly, we also needed to go back to our LP and also communicate well with them in terms of our thinking and, and also that we're actually well positioned to weather the storm as a venture fund. So we did spend some time preparing presentation for them and kind of walking them through, you know, what happened in, in the previous crisis in 08. And actually you see that a lot of great companies were founded in, in 08 and 09 and that we are privileged in the sense that we just raised a fund and so we have money to deploy in the next couple of years. And if you look back and also do a bit of analysis on fund performance, you realize that funds that invested in the downturn also did do quite well um, because it's an environment where you have a lot of money that pull out. And also you still have great entrepreneurs who are going and starting companies. So they tend to be also more resilient. I think putting all this um, analysis together is also a great way to, to get the team to focus on the right things and uh, to enable us to in a great relationship with our investors and also with our portfolio company. So that's the type of situation where the insights function helps like bring all the information together to, to support the firm more widely. Mm, cool. So you're actually kind of supporting the process, not only of helping the portfolio companies, but reporting back to the LPs. 
Yeah, and through this, we also help the teams think through all the different problems, I guess, and challenges and opportunities that come with this type of event. So we also set up a team that is meant to like think about the different thesis that we are interested in, how they might benefit or actually be challenged by what is happening right now. And it kind of also helps asking yourself the right questions. In any case, you know, when we make an investment, we have very high bar. So I guess it's just like reinforcing some of that thought process also to apply in, in that kind of scenario as well. But also not becoming too risk averse, which is, you know, part of the same process. Yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying about there being pockets of opportunity for self-reflection and recalibration, not only for investors, but also for preneurs who ultimately are going to have to weather this storm because it's it's here now. Yes, exactly. And um, And I mean, again, if you look at some of the analysis that was done by Tribe Capital, for example, they also looked at previous crisis and realized that actually big, large venture funds that's been established and have been in the game for a long time, they actually managed to weather the storm a lot better than more opportunistic capital. So we feel like the European ecosystem is very well placed because there's a lot of funds that have been around for for a long time and that have actually just raised uh, a new fund. So they'll be able to invest in the ecosystem. Yeah, I think it's great to have such solid data-driven foundations to build these kinds of insights on and then ultimately that's what will result in the approach of these funds. Um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about the state of European tech report that you write sort of moving away from COVID even though we could talk about it all day because I think it's one of the most well-regarded reports in the industry and people wait for it and it generates a lot of discourse every year. Um, and I think it's really cool that we have the opportunity to talk to you and talk about how you bring that together and what goes into it. Yeah, of course. So it's actually a report that's been running for a couple of years, um, so I cannot take much credit for it. <laughs> I was started by Tom Bemeyer, the partner that I work the most closely with, uh, in 2015. So this year was the fifth edition. And, and it was honestly an amazing experience to be part of. A lot of hard work because we have to turn around uh, the report in less than a month. But it's a lot of fun, and I think it embodies everything that is great about Europe in general. We are also lucky to do this with Slush and Auric, who have been great partners for us over the years. And how do you go about creating the report? So we have established relationships with uh, data providers, and every year we add new ones. So this year, I think we had about 15 different data providers and uh, they essentially help us feed data-driven insight into the reports. And we have established like a core set of themes um, that we wanted to cover. And this year we decided to add one more, which was the chapter on purpose-driven tech. And I think every year we just want to make the report better and go a bit deeper into each of these themes. And uh, and this year we're very lucky to have a lot of founders take the survey. It gave us an amazing insight into the founder journey. And um, that's why we have made a great chapter on founder profile and just give us so much to work with. So I think it's really 
about the ecosystem coming together. We've created this great platform where we can relay everything that's happening in Europe to the broader community. Yeah. And what was behind the decision to include a chapter on purpose-driven tech this year? That's a great question. We are entering a new decade. The next 10 years are key in our fight against climate change and will define the next thousand, like Nicholas likes to say. So it was important to shine a light on companies building with purpose and in a similar way to what we did for diversity and inclusion, bring this topic to the table and amplify its reach thanks to the report. And that we wanted to test whether or not the next generation of entrepreneurs was more purpose-driven. So we, we partnered with Dillroom to try to quantify the strand and identify the growing universe of purpose-driven European tech companies. To do so, we created a framework to assess venture-backed European tech companies based on their alignment with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. You can read more about the methodology in the reports, but we were amazed to see that indeed this was directionally right and that 2019 saw a huge spike in investment into European tech companies seeking to solve some of humanity's most pressing problems. What's the the response to the report like? Do you get lots of people um, feeding back their own thoughts on it? Do you get lots of approaches from founders? What does it tend to be like? Yeah, I think it's it's amazing the breadth the, the report has and how it impacts people in very different ways. So we're always amazed to see like a lot of great positive feedback from founders or even investors and people who actually report back that they've decided to start a company because um, they read the report and they felt that they wanted to also be part of the journey or, you know, a lot of actually small uh, funds or first-time funds that are using our data to be able to pitch and to be able to raise uh, funding, even regulators or the European Union in lots of ways. Um, the, the council uses our, our data as well um, to be able to support some of their initiatives to help grow the ecosystem. So it's really a wide range of use cases, which is, uh, which is why we've always wanted to make it super accessible and also to make sure that you can download the data and you can use it in any way you want. That's amazing. And even from this very short period of time that we've been speaking, it's clear that you're exceptionally busy, Sarah. Um, I did a little bit of LinkedIn stalking. Um, do correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I see that you worked in, well, at least three different countries and in two very different industries. So in, in finance and, the, and in a startup world. Um, how do you think these experiences have helped you in your current role at Atomico? Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. I, I would just say, like, if I had to summarize this very quickly, is that actually my previous role and the role I'm doing now are very similar. And, uh, and maybe that's a good segue into, like, how I got into VC, really. And, and I guess my path into VC is a bit of a, I guess, lucky and uh, unusual one. And I had always been interested in becoming an entrepreneur from a very young age. And that's why I actually started in finance, because I felt like it would give me a lot of professional experience and, and a good network and a great base whenever I wanted to start my business. Uh, but, you know, being in, in finance, I start to get a little more risk averse. And so instead of starting a business from scratch, I decided to, to get my hands dirty and, uh, and see what it takes to build a business by, by joining a, a startup. So I started looking for an opportunity and 
I've always liked slightly geeky stuff as well <laughs> and uh, doing analysis. <laughs> numbers are fun <laughs> for me. <laughs> Yay, that's good. It's good to promote numbers. So anyway, I came across um, this company called Appany and the, the job they offered me was like the perfect fit. I had never heard of such a job before, I have to be honest. But essentially, they wanted me to support business development in Europe. And the idea was quite simple. They had a lot of great data, but how to act on it for companies wasn't always obvious. They didn't know how to use it. And you could actually showcase the, the value of the platform 10 times better if you created that link for them by doing like a presentation and uh, showing how you could use the data to get insights and, and then translate that into actionable insights for the business. So I, I like the idea of alternative data and I felt like it was uh, clearly going to become a big thing because it increased the ability to have transparency into private companies. And I had seen how much that had uh, transformed the public markets in a way. So I was very much interested in this opportunity. And quickly, my role changed very, very fast because I realized that a lot of what I was doing was actually being sort of an MVP uh, of what should really be in the platform that they had built. And also a lot of the content I was creating could be leveraged across the organization for you know, targeted marketing or workshops. So by the end of the two years I was there, I was working across almost all functions and doing a mix of strategy and product marketing by working with product sales and, and marketing. And so Apani was also backed by some big USBC firms like Raycroft and, and Sequoia. So it made me curious about venture. And as you probably know, mobile is the best window you have into the consumer space. So we used the platform a lot to highlight growing companies. And a lot of them were startups. And I was lucky to work with uh, Samir Singh, who writes a lot about tech. And we would often discuss content posted by VCs. And we would use their frameworks to look at mobile positioning and better advise customers. So all of that made me want to look into VC more. And I started to apply to VC roles. And I found myself debating a lot whether I wanted to be an investor or not. Because as you can imagine, like most of the jobs today in VC are investor jobs. Yeah. And Atomico made it simple for me. <laughs> I was looking for someone to do essentially exactly what I was doing. But instead of servicing sales people, I was servicing investors. So it made the transition quite, uh, quite a no-brainer for me because it was exactly what I liked doing, but in a venture setup. That's so cool and so fortuitous that it seemed to just be there at the right place in the right time. But it does seem to be the case with a lot of people in VC. Mm, no, for sure. I, I think you kind of have to find the thing you're good at and... And I think this type of job, honestly, is lacking a lot of VCs. Because one thing I've realized is that although venture funds invest in tech and are always thinking about technology that is revolutioning the world, and sometimes, you know, even, I don't know, things that will happen 20 years from now, actually the, the funds in itself is not always the most techy place. So there is a lot can do actually trying to extract more value from the operations themselves. And I think a lot of funds aren't leveraging that as much as they could. So there's a lot of untapped value that is sitting in all those different funds. And I think there might be more roles like mine opening up uh, in the future. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think there should be. Could you tell us a little bit more about Atomico's investment process from, you know, identifying a business that you want to talk to, to the stages that the founder has to go through in order to receive investment from you guys? Uh, yeah, of course. So I think it's pretty standard. Um, it's very similar to what other VC do. You have the the associates and senior associates that will be scouting and looking for, for great investment opportunities. And then they will present them internally. And once they get more partners or more people in the team to lean in, they will progress the opportunity along and then they will present it to the investment committee. So first we would have like um, a founder pitch. So the founder would come in and pitch the ID to the investment committee and then uh, the investment committee would make a decision on the investment. And honestly, the pace just varies deal to deal. We try to be as quick as possible. And are you involved in every single deal because of your macro perspective? Yeah, so not on every single deal. I'm involved after a certain point. So let's say, you know, once the deal has matured and is starting to be more qualified, um, then I would intervene before it goes to investment committee and I would add the additional lens to it. So otherwise it would be just too many. many (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you'd be inundated as well as all the other things that you have to crack on with. Um, And and you mentioned sort of qualifiers um, or qualifying. Um, What other than fitting within where you see potential in terms of uh, market trends, what what are the other qualifiers that Atomico uses to uh, evaluate a business? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I think in general, you know, just to give you the, the high level, we always look at a company against a certain set of categories. So we, for example, we're going to look at a company and try to develop conviction around the team. So, you know, how good is the team, their ability to also execute on their vision. Uh, we're going to try and build conviction on the, the products and whether the product has found market fits as well. Uh, we're going to look at the ability for the company to develop a moat. We're going to review the business model, the unit economics. I mean, there's a, a list of things that we need to get conviction around, but essentially it boils down to how well positioned is the team and the business to capture an opportunity that we think is big enough for it to become meaningful given the size of our fund, if I had to really boil it down. And then you can obviously break that down in lots of different aspects. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. And I guess I guess that's also the thing which, you know, makes it more difficult when you have a, a bigger fund is you want to look for those really big opportunity. And that's why, you know, sometimes there are companies that are amazing out there, but they just won't fit the profile that we're looking for because of the type of returns that we need to hit. Absolutely. And could you be able to tell us a few companies in your portfolio you've been part of the investment process? Yes. Uh, So actually, the first deal that I worked on uh, that ended up going through is Cora Kids. Oh, I love Kuru Kids. Yeah, so we worked on that with the team. 
and more specifically helped think through the size of the market and also the strategic positioning uh, with different competitors as well. Could you tell the listeners a little bit more about what Curry Kids does? Yes. So Curry Kids is for now based mainly in London and it's a childcare service that essentially helps you connect with an after-school nanny to help you with all your childcare needs. And what was particularly exciting about Coro Kids for you? Yeah, I think for me, I was very impressed by the founder. And also I felt like that, that was a market that was completely untapped. I thought it was insane that there was nobody trying to solve that problem, which is such a big problem for a lot of families. And also it has a big uh, mission component to it because actually a lot of women also are not able to go back to work because of childcare management issues most of the time. Yeah, I think it's fantastic you've invested in that kind of company because it, it fits really into the additional component that you added to your report you know it's a purposeful business which I think is amazing yeah yeah no exactly and it's good to hear that you were impressed by the founder because um Francesca and I were talking about this earlier and it's actually her question but I think it's really good so I'm going to ask it instead (laughs) we were thinking that founders are probably often kind of intimidated by the reputation of Atomico and so we wondered like how do you get them comfortable how do you get them to open up about their business and share with you all the things that you need to make a solid decision? So first and foremost, venture is all about relationships. And uh, that's a key focus for our teams. And they actually spend a lot of time with companies and with founders, uh, even before we consider investing. So, you know, in that sense, I think founders get quite comfortable with the different people that they interact with at Atomico. And in general, we also try to make them feel prepared when they come and pitch with the IC. And people in the room are always like friendly faces. Um, so I think in general, there's nothing intimidating about, about us as a group. Um, Francesca, shall we do question time? Yes. Are you ready for question time, Sarah? Yes, I'm ready. Amazing. Well, thank you so much to everyone that submitted questions to our email. Um, there are some super great questions, but we've decided to go with Summit. So congratulations, Summit. You had a great question. So his question is, never has it been more important to speed up the integration of tech in our lives? be it using AI models to understand COVID strains or using web-based platforms to chat with our loved ones. The private sector has played a pivotal role in developing these tools. Do you see a new post-COVID-19 model emerging where public-private collaborations increase exponentially on a financial, tech, as well as social impact level? Because one thing is clear, both are interdependent and not independent? Yes, so it's, it's a great question. And I actually think that Europe is in a great position uh, to tackle this because we have strong institutions and a desire to have more collaboration between the private sector and the public sector. It's one thing we called out in the State of European Tech report last year 
was that actually we need to have more discussions and we need to be more involved with the regulatory bills that are being put in place in Europe more broadly. And I think this crisis is showcasing also the ability to those institutions to respond quickly, as we've seen a lot of programs emerge across Europe to try and support startups in these days of needs. I also think that we at Atomico have been investing in companies that are looking to transform the infrastructure. And I completely agree that we need more strategic players to come together and essentially help build the world of tomorrow. We actually were talking about this in in a team meeting last week, and we said that we almost need an infrastructure fund to open up and specialize in investing in those groundbreaking technology, essentially. And this could be a great joint effort between the public and the private sector. It's an amazing answer and um, congratulations, Summit, for, well, first off, asking a great question. And secondly, I think Sarah's very kindly offered to grab a virtual coffee with you. So thank you very much, Sarah, for giving Summit that opportunity and what we're all about is associated. So, yes, thank you so much. I'm excited and we can talk more about this. <laughs> awesome. Um, and my next question is for our listeners as well. Are you guys hiring at the moment? And I believe you've got some exciting announcements about two new hires. I had a good old read of the article this morning and they just sound phenomenal. Yeah, thank you. We're super excited to welcome two more female investment professionals at Atomico. So we have Therese and Sasha joining us. They're a great addition to the team and we're super, super excited to have them. We are always looking for great talents. So I guess to your questions, I would say yes. Amazing. And what kind of people do Atomico hire? Well, we definitely live by our words. So we are looking for a diverse set of people, which is not super helpful because I wouldn't be able to tell you what's the typical profile that we look for. I mean, of course, we need people that are analytical and that are passionate about technology and that, you know, love the idea of spending their days with entrepreneurs. But that can be a lot of different people. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly what the profile is that we look for. I think that's a good answer. I think a a list of a set criteria is just the the wrong approach because a venture team is as good as the team rather than the individual or the partner that's running it. So yes, uh, I think you mentioned previously that you've certainly become really good at being a bit of a data whiz. So owning a craft and um, also having a passion for technologies is certainly a good start. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the key, really. Find something you like. No, actually find something you love. and, And I think you will find that naturally you will gravitate around the right people in the end. Um, or at least I believe that. I mean, you can also force a bit of luck by spending more time trying to meet people and reach out to people that you find interesting, striking up conversations um, on Twitter or across all kinds of different social media. And I think it just works itself out slowly. And yeah, you will find a space somewhere that just work for you. Yeah, I like that. I definitely think there's an element of having to create a bit of your own look. Exactly. 
often. How do people get in touch with you or Atomico, Sarah? Yeah, I'm super happy to answer to as many emails as I can. I am reachable also on Twitter. So you can just touch me on Twitter or you can uh, message me on LinkedIn. I'm usually quite responsive. Awesome. And is there anything else you'd like to plug? Yes. Uh, firstly, don't hesitate to reach out if you want to collaborate with us on the next State of European Tech Report. We are always looking for new partners that either have interesting data sets to contribute or can help us spread the survey across Europe. And finally, we are always keen to know what are the most pressing questions you have about European tech. So don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time this Monday afternoon. We've really enjoyed having you on. And again, thank you, Lois, for being the best co-host ever. <laughs> you are so welcome, honestly. Thank anytime. you. Thank you both. And of course, thank you to our lovely listeners. We've got a Notion page if you want to check that out with all the uh, terminology and tips and tricks of getting into the industry or tips and tricks to founders of how to get investment. So do check that out. You'll find the link on our Twitter page and our anchor page. And do give us a follow and a like. It will mean so much. And please do email us or post a note on Twitter. We're always keen to hear from you. So our email address is associatedpodcast at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at associated underscore pod. So yes, do follow, do get involved. And thank you so much for listening. Bye. See you next time. Bye.